Hey there, listeners. Welcome to Horror Movie Club, the show where two dudes who are not quite nerds but not quite noobs choose a horror movie each week to rate and review. I'm Brian, I'm on the phone with Ashvin, and today we are discussing The Babadook from 2014, directed and written by Jennifer Kent, starring Essie Davis, Noah Wiseman, and Tim Purcell. In this Australian film, a single mother and her son are plagued by an entity straight from the pages of a mysterious children's book. If you're new to the show, we're going to discuss this movie background free. Background free? Background. <laughs> spoiler, spoiler free. Some like background info on the movie. So you won't hear any spoilers for the first 15 or 20, but after that, we're going to play some transition music and move into the plot walkthrough where we spoil everything in detail and review the film. So if you haven't seen it by the time you hear that transition music, go watch it. I can't remember where it's streaming. Do you remember, Rush? Yeah, I think it's on Hulu. Oh, yeah. I think you're right. Hulu. And this was a request by Elijah A. And just uh, one of the bigger, more well-known horror movies of the modern age that we still haven't discussed yet. I feel like this is one of the big big ones that's been hanging out there that <laughs> that we haven't gotten around to yet. We're checking all the major ones off our list. We're running out of those big ones. Uh, I, I, do, when we're gonna do this. I know we keep saying that, but I do feel like we're running out of the the household name horror movies yeah the classics right right but fun one to revisit yes very fun to revisit we had discussed this years back together and had a discussion on it before we started the podcast but it's been a little while yeah so hey did we watch this together by any chance it's possible yeah i can't remember who i i saw it with back in the day um, but it was 2014, so you would have left, you would have been no, out of Chicago. I would, yeah, we wouldn't have been living in this same place. Okay. I, I doubt we saw it together. Do you remember if you like saw this in theaters or streamed it? I think I streamed it. Okay, yeah, probably same. Yeah. Um, before we dive into it, I want to give some shout outs to new patrons, Christina B, Anthony P, Jeremy D, Jeff U, Mandy S, Justin J, Annie S, and Charles Ard. And Luis A. Thank all of you for supporting the show. We really appreciate it. If you want to support the show for a dollar a month, you can go to horrormovieclub.com and click on the big orange Patreon button, and you'll gain access to some bonus content. I'm trying to pick put out a bonus episode uh, once a month these days. So go check that out. Um, and yeah, for now, here we are discussing the Babadook, a supernatural horror movie psychological horror movie and i think you could safely put it in the grief horror bucket as well very totally. much about grief yeah i am currently reading stephen king's dance macabre or i don't know if it's dance macabre or dance macabre he spells dance with an s <laughs> <laughs> but one thing he talks about in that book is he kind of makes an assertion that there are two types of horror stories or horror films one where there is outside evil and one where there is inside evil. And I don't think it's too big of a spoiler to say this movie is kind of both of those. It's it's similar to The Shining almost in that there is an outside supernatural entity that is the force of evil, but we're also seeing a, char- a character confront the evil within themselves. Yeah, I agree. I mean, uh, I, I think... When he called out the categories on this film, did you call out Supernatural by any chance? I believe I did. Oh, you did? Oh, okay. Uh, that's an interesting quote by Stephen King, because uh, I feel like the best movies would have elements of both, uh, outside and inside, uh, right? 
I agree. And his best story, arguably, does in The Shining. Right, right. But he's saying uh, movies fall into like one, uh, stories fall into one of those buckets. Yeah, and I don't think he's saying, "Hey, it's got to be one or two, and you can't." There's no overlap in the Venn diagram. But it was just a a concept he introduced in one of the chapters I read, and maybe okay. he'll circle back around to it. I haven't finished the book yet. I hope so. Yeah, because that, that seems like a, it seems like he's implying you got to do one of those and can't do both. When yeah, I feel like the best work we've seen does both of those really well. Yeah, not always, but sure. The Definitely. It's a, it makes for a rich story. Yep, for sure. Yeah, I was, I was wondering uh, if you'd actually consider because I think this one compared to a, a lot of other ones, like maybe our Supernatural first and then you can like step back and draw the themes around like, oh, maybe it represents this or something or it's trying to showcase this. This one, I think it, like it's pretty clear that like uh, the monster is an extension of like inner things. I, I think more so than other films, right? Yeah, I do think that this one makes it Pretty clear. I could also see people watching this and not really catching on to that, but mm. I do think it's fairly clear that it is a symbol of inner grief. Yeah. Okay. I yeah. I almost wonder if like that's one of the critiques is like I feel like uh, you know Stephen King. If you look at like it, maybe uh, I don't know if people associate Pennywise like the the, the clown in that is. I mean, yeah. The, the title of the book is it, and it's like this thing that uh, this like fear that they have, right? And it like an embodiment of of their fears. Yeah, sure, but it's not so. Um, it's still so much more outside. It's not confronting the evil within them. It's confronting their own fears, really. Sure. Yeah, confronting their fears. But I, I feel like a film like that you can watch and maybe not pick up on uh, it being like the their fears. Well, I guess. Yeah. That one makes it pretty pretty clear as pretty well. Pretty clear. Okay, okay. Yeah. Yeah, I guess there's a bucket of movies that makes it pretty clear, and this feels like it's one of those. Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, the This is an Australian film, and as we've seen with a few foreign films, especially Canada, those countries often fund the films, uh, at least partially, and it looks like this movie got most of its funding from the Australian government. What would you think, and I know neither of us is really equipped to discuss this intelligently, but what (laughs) would you think about the U.S. doing the same? Like, is that in the cards? Would it be worthwhile? Is it just not digestible? That's interesting. Is it just not baked into our society and never will be? Um, Do you consider things like PBS or NPR, uh, like government-funded media that we're absorbing? Yeah, yeah, I mean, they are. Yeah, so it's like Sesame Street basically funded by the government? Yes, right. Okay, so it does exist in the U.S., uh, but sp- supposedly for educational purposes and not the, necessarily... Yeah, I mean, the, the concept exists, and I mean, we fund museums, we fund libraries, but as far as I know, we're not really funding films, like theatrical wide-release films, or even, you know fairly small release, limited release films, aside from various tax incentives and stuff that are basically yeah. available to the big studios and the small studios, as far as I know. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Yeah, it's more of like a free market here. Uh, yeah, less less uh, taxpayer money going into movies, but yeah, it, it, then it comes out on the incentives. Um, I bet you've got like local organizations, though, that like support film directors or like uh, up-and-coming films uh don't you yeah probably but those are that's you know publicly funded via like 
donations and charity, not yeah. th- through the government. Got it. But then, yeah, here, like, certain state governments, I know we've seen that in some horror films, like, a certain state will give them, like, a big, like, incentive to, like, come and shoot your movie in the state, right? Yes, and I, I think that, from what I understand, though, that's more, like, incentivizing based on the jobs it will create or the economic stimulus within that area. It's not really the intent of, we believe art is a public good, so we will fund art. Oh, yeah. For for the sake of art itself. Yeah, yeah, good point. Yeah, you think it's like our, our capitalism and anti-socialist uh, ideologies here that keep us from funding these projects? Maybe to a certain extent, but again, we do it with other forms of art. I think it's just maybe... Horror films. It's not... Well, in movies in general, really, it's just not as intertwined with film as it is with other forms of art. And I think that's because movies have shown that they can be such big business that the idea of funding movies to somebody who doesn't know a whole lot about how the film industry works would, I think a lot of people would scoff at that. Yeah. Yeah. You're probably right. Uh, this is a part of me though. And I know this is completely like unfounded, but I got to think like all these movies, like from the eighties and, and, uh, nineties, like about like Russian bad guys and stuff, or like, uh, the, the threat of like Islamic terrorists and stuff. This is part of me that it was just like convinced like Hollywood, uh, is somehow like being funded by like government propaganda or there's some like interplay between the two to like push those messages on society. But, uh, that, that's just a conspiracy theory. I, I doubt it's true. Yeah. I mean, that feels like a conspiracy theory that could easily be true. <laughs> okay. I'm not one to buy into conspiracy theories, but I that one feels more easily believable than others. Okay, so I got you signed up for that one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if there's direct evidence of that happening with certain yeah. films. Yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe in other countries it's just more uh, known, like the, the, the funding or the, the efforts that go there. Here it's more behind the scenes, potentially. Sure, right, and I guess that raises questions and maybe that would be part of the the to do or the hubbub about it if it was proposed like well what kind of statements will the gov- US government be funding yeah i i got one for you that they funded that whole movie about us landing on the moon in the 70s oh my god <laughs> I, I do like that one it's coming back it's yes. been a while <laughs> i know on the topic of government uh funded films <laughs> yeah Oh boy! I do think maybe we should just have a a Patreon episode where you you present your argument. Yeah, I'd like one where you present your argument on why you think it happens. Yeah, that's that's sure. I think we could each come prepared and have a debate. Yeah, one of us with facts, the other one with propaganda. (laughs) All right, (laughs) twenty twenty four (laughs) goals. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's an interesting movie for a government to fund i mean it it feels pretty uh detached from any messaging that the government would want to uh incentivize i mean yeah. and it's interesting because it's very much about a taboo like motherhood not being fun or rewarding or right. <laughs> having any difficulty finding finding good in your experience of motherhood so sure yeah, yeah. It, which uh, you know, I think as we've uh, come around in like these ten past ten years, like the more these kind of topics are brought up or like shown in mainstream uh, media, I feel like it's more embraced nowadays to yeah be more vocal about this kind of stuff. Yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree. I, this is a personal movie for me now that I've 
<laughs> the first time I watched it, I wasn't a parent, and now I am. So yeah, I'm really curious how how that changes your perspective going through a movie like this. Yeah, you know it 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 sh- heightened the experience in some ways and dulled the experience in others. So we'll mm-hmm. get into it once we go through the plot. Yeah. Hey, on the topic of this being an Australian film, uh, did you see a lot of connections between this story uh, or like yeah the themes here? And uh, Talk to Me, which was like a big Australian hit from last year. Oh, interesting. Um, just trying to think on the themes of that. <sighs> Disconnection was a big theme in that. So that does mm-hmm. seem like a theme here. Yeah. Um, yeah. Maybe I do see some some connected themes. Like, I think maybe that had themes of addiction and maybe that enabling a disconnection from society Mm-hmm. Or just both of those two themes separately, and this one doesn't really have much about addiction per se, but she does seem to spend a lot of time like glued to her TV. Oh yeah, and she's not disconnection is very much part of it because she is disconnected from her family and some of the people around her. Right, almost not through any fault of her own, really. I mean, it is in a way. She's almost uh, addicted to her grieving, really. Yeah, yeah, I think that keeps her in. Uh, yeah, I, I just think, uh, like, these being two prominent Australian horror films, I thought uh, it's interesting. They both kind of take a very... Uh, um, they're very open about, like, this idea of, like, grief, isolation, depression on their main characters and how that plays into the horror. Right, yeah. Yeah, and I guess the, both of the main characters are grieving a loss, and oh, yeah. some of their disconnection is because of that loss. So, yeah, they're totally. very similar now that I think yeah. about it. Uh, so this is Jennifer Kent's first dir- feature directorial debut, and it is based on her 2005 short film, Monster. She started her career as an actor and has been an acting teacher for years. And she's got this other film, The Nightingale, which I'd love to cover sometime as well, from 2018. I would too, yeah. That's also got rave reviews. Uh, I, f- I feel like she's uh, like a, a really great director, given like she's had two films that have done so well. Yeah, yeah, we got to check that out. I... I I feel we need to have an opinion on that because it seems like, for all accounts, she should be up there with the likes of like Jordan Peele, Robert Eggers, and whatnot. But I don't. I think the Nightingale was a difficult subject matter. So, mm. yeah, I don't, I don't know what that's about. Sounds like sexism. I, I think it could be. That's but uh, that's why I'm curious to see the Nightingale. It might be obvious sure. why she's not considered among their ranks after we see that. But yeah. Hey, uh, her short film, the, or, or Monster, that, that's not one that we've seen, right? Cause I, I know we saw one movie called Monster. Yeah, Unrelated. Unrelated from that, okay. Yeah, she also that was acted a in Brian a, Bertino film. Oh, yeah, right, right. And then she also acted in Babe, Pig in the City. Oh, did I didn't I missed that. Good oh, for man. her. Yeah, I know. Kind of cool background. I, I first was an actress and then got tired of acting and moved into directing. Yeah, and as part of her move to directing, she wrote to Lars von Trier to ask to study under him, and he agreed. Yeah. That's so she really assisted cool. him on his film Dogville. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Essie Davis, who stars in this film, won a Fangoria Chainsaw Award for Best Leading Actress. Uh, she played Lady Crane in season six of Game of Thrones. I can't remember who that is, but. I can't either. I'm sure if you asked me while I was watching season six, I would know exactly who it was. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, little Noah Wiseman won Best Supporting Actor at the Fangoria Chainsaw Awards that year. 
Nice. I noticed that uh, he's the son of a psychologist, which I felt very uh, relieved to hear because I feel like after <laughs> yeah. shooting movies like this, he kind of <laughs> that's rough. It sounds like great care was taken to kind of isolate him from the worst of things, and oftentimes when he's being like yelled at or cursed at, he's not actually <laughs> there. But yeah, yeah, it's hard to see how he wouldn't be at least a little bit traumatized from this movie. Yeah, how old was he when this was shot? Was like six I or don't seven? know. I, I would guess about seven. Okay, yeah, that's wild. But this is a very well-regarded movie, as we said. It's considered a modern classic. It's got Rotten Tomatoes critic score of 98%, a user score of 72%. William Friedkin, director of The Exorcist, tweeted that he'd never seen a more terrifying film. It's won numerous rewards, and it's made its way into Scream 5 being noted as one of Tara Carpenter's favorite horror movies. I don't know if that's an accolade or not, but I thought it was <laughs> worth mentioning. Nice. And it won the Fangoria Chainsaw Award for Best Limited Release or direct video Film and Best Screenplay, and it won a bunch of uh, Australian Academy of Cinema and Television Arts Awards as well. Did you say the financial success? Yeah, budgeted $2 million, box office of $10.5 million, so okay. not a huge box office number, but over five times its budget, so that's a win. Yeah, not bad. And then it began streaming on Netflix in 2016. I'm not sure if it's still on there as well, but I think mm. it may have dropped from there. I think you're right. Also, uh, the the book sold about 9,500 copies. I, I'd love a copy of that book. They made a book? Yeah, it was actually a book. I think they sold it for like 80 bucks. Uh, and the first 2,000, I guess, were numbered. Um, and then they sold the other ones as well. But yeah, a copy of that book sounds awesome. Wow, that would be wonderful to have, and perhaps terrifying to have. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a little bit of both. Uh, it's clear she kind of took some inspiration from 1920s horror, and she actually wanted the film to be in black and white, but then it was decided to, to go in color. But still with the color, the tones and the color choices, it still feels true to that black and white spirit in, in a sense. It's It's in color, but it really kind of... The color blends well into the black and white book and the black and white imagery of the the ghoul. Yeah, it really does. Yeah, yeah it's almost uh, kind of like bleak. Like you don't have yes. like a, like bright colors or like a lot of uh, light in this film. It's bleak, but it's like a stylized bleak. So many films we watch are just so washed out. It's like, ugh, this yeah. is just boring to watch. But this has a distinct style to it. Yeah, it does. Like a high contrast. Uh, right bleakness <laughs> yep if that yep. even that might be a what do you call that oh <laughs> <laughs> i really want to get to this word but it's not going to happen <laughs> all right if you think of it later let me know <laughs> yeah thanks oxymoron there it is oh nice nice i contrast uh, speaking of 1920s horror london after midnight was an inspiration for the design of the babadook specifically um What's that dude called in the movie? I can't remember. There's a there's a name for the villain in that movie, but it's mm. a 1920s lost film starring Lon Chaney and directed by Todd Browning. And basically the villain in that movie wears a top hat and looks looks a lot like the Babadook. Cool. That's that's how you wear a hat, FYI. Yeah, you're a fan of this hat? I think this hat works. Yeah, All I feel right. like Freddy Krueger could take some notes here. I'm glad it meets your approval. Yeah, it's not a fucking fedora, yeah. This guy means to scare. Uh, Any other background you want to touch on before we get into the Ohio Connection? Uh, No, I think he had everything I had. So, yeah, down for the Ohio Connection. 
All right. Our Ohio connection, as usual, comes from our friend Alex, who owns the Jukebox Bar and Restaurant in Cleveland, Ohio. He connects every movie to our home state of Ohio for us, and Alex says, The Babadook is an Australian psychological horror film written and directed by Jennifer Kent about a widowed single mother who must confront a mysterious humanoid monster with her son. Kent has stated that the monster design for The Babadook was inspired by The Man in the Beaver Hat. There it is. From the 1927 film London After Midnight, starring Lon Chaney. Lon Chaney, a.k.a. the Man of a Thousand Faces, is regarded as, one of, regarded as one of the most versatile and powerful actors of cinema, renowned for his characterizations of tortured, often grotesque and afflicted characters, and his ground-breaking artistry with makeup. His starring roles in silent horror films include The Hunchback of Notre Dame and The Phantom of the Opera. His great-grandfather was 1830s U.S. Congressman John Chaney from Canal Winchester, Ohio. Wow. Good Boom. find. That's a great incredible. find. I love that connection. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, hey, it is awesome. <laughs> All right. All right, hey, buddy. Oh, actually, uh, one uh, topic uh, before, we, before we jump into this. Uh, kids in Horror, I think we talked about this on our Patreon uh, about Damien. I think you mentioned uh, the guy from The Exorcist liked this film. Um, do you put this in a similar bucket? Like, is there this fear uh, amongst like horror filmmakers of children are they are they trying to capture the fear of parenting uh, a child in like movies like The Exorcist, Damien in in this film? Do, do you think there's something about being a parent that's like so scary that's driving the plot here? I mean, The Babadook is definitely about how being a parent is scary. But you're asking basically any creepy kid or demonic kid is that really just a subconscious toying with of like oh being a parent is hard and kids are difficult it's really scary i think that's more about the poisoning of things that are meant to be innocent like Uh, it goes hand in hand with the creepy dolls like sure something about it just doesn't sit right with us Mm. um yeah but i think you could make an argument that it you could also find themes of parenting sucks yeah people being scared of their kids that kind of thing yeah Mm -hmm. okay yeah interesting okay all right, buddy. Can uh, let's let's get through the plot. We'll we'll spoil stuff and review the movie. But do you mind holding on one second? I'm hearing some sort of construction, which sounds like it's happening in my house. Oh wow. Okay, yeah. All right, I'll be right back. I'm gonna check on this. Sounds good. Hey, buddy, I'm back. Hey, everything okay? Yeah, yeah, it's all good. It was just my kid doing some complex woodworking. Nothing unusual to report. (laughs) Usual, he's got the saw out and everything? Yeah, he's six, so he's at that age where he makes complicated contraptions (laughs) using nails, saws, dangerous, sharp objects like that. That's what kids are good at. (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) And that is the thing that took me out of the movie. With uh, Really? Yeah. (laughs) It's maybe silly, but... Being not a parent, I was just, you know, I kind of overlooked that part. And now that I am a parent, I'm like, what is this kid doing? And how old is he? <laughs> yeah. He definitely had access to, like, some dangerous objects. <laughs> yeah. That, it just didn't make sense. And, like, very adept at <laughs> building things. That yeah. Just, yeah. Yeah. Pretty impressive. All right. So this film opens with a car accident, as so many horror films do. See our episode from two weeks ago when we discussed The Changeling on that topic. And see next week's episode, The Empty Man. 
Oh my gosh. Yeah, that's true. Holy shit. We're yeah. surrounded by car accidents. I know. We got behind you. <laughs> uh, but this car accident is in the form of our main character's dream. It is. It did really happen, but she's dreaming about it. Amelia is having a nightmare about the car accident that killed her husband when the two of them were on the way to the hospital to give birth to their son, Samuel. For my money, this was done much more creatively than most films that open with a tragedy. It was kind of a borderline black and white dream sequence with just a close-up on her face as the car gets struck. Mm-hmm. And you can tell just by her movements that the car is like rolling multiple times. And that was probably cheaper to do it that way. <laughs> and it looked really good. How, what did you think of this? I, I liked it too because uh, it also feeds into the idea that like she's having a dream. Like it wasn't just like a straight reenactment. It was kind of like a dream state of like remembering a, something that happened to you, and it's all like centered on her and her experience in that. And uh, yeah, the way like she just kind of looks over at her husband. Uh, yeah, I thought it was like a very intimate and like unique way to show that uh, experience or that trauma. Right. It's not just like here's a car accident that traumatizes our character. It's like here is our character. Reliving it. that trauma yeah. day in day out, right? Um, yeah, and it's a good, a good way to start the film because it really sets the, the tone of like this whole thing is the blending of psychology and actual events. So, mm-hmm. so she wakes up to her son Samuel saying he had the same nightmare again, not the same one she had, but you know he's got his monster nightmare that's recurring for him or whatever, and he climbs into her bed. He's all over her with his hand wrapped around her neck and his leg wrapped around her body, and she kind of extracts his hand and leg and scooches over a bit, showing that she's clearly annoyed with him. So not the way we're used to seeing motherhood depicted in movies, like, get off me. <laughs> I don't want you around. <laughs> yeah. Uh, she wakes up to him tinkering with some sort of monster defense device that he's created, and he ends up launching a ball, what looks like a bocce ball or something, through a glass window. They even show like a montage with saw and nails. So I think what irks me about it is this, even though it's a supernatural movie, so much of it is based in realism, and just this is kind of outlandish to me. But That he would be able to build this? Yeah. Contraption? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think I would know how to build that. And that she would give him access to these tools. That part seems a little more believable because she's like a single mother and she's got like a lot going on. Uh, so I could see like an oversight on like what he's up to. But yeah, in terms of like complexity of, of build, I, I, I hear your point there. Yeah, I mean, if we, it would be one thing if she was like, what, you got into the tools? But th- this seems like part of their daily routine. Oh, uh, yeah. He's... She's not painted as quote unquote a good mom. And, you know, we'll probably discuss parenthood and how that's kind of problematic and whatever. But that seems extreme to me to that she's allowing that to happen. Sure, sure. Or that, like, he, yeah, he's even got these, like, pretty dangerous weapons on him. Yeah, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's another scene here kind of painting the, the relationship between the two where he gives his mom a hug and she screams, don't do that. But I couldn't tell if she just meant don't give me a hug or maybe he was squeezing her too hard or being too rough. She's just kind of annoyed at his physical contact. Yeah, yeah. I think, uh, yeah, it feels like uh, she's not really available to him. Uh, and I feel like she's kind of closed herself off a little bit to him. And that's why, like, she's, like, not receptive of his hugs and stuff like that. Definitely. She is emotionally unavailable. Yeah. 
That day while she's at her job where she works in a nursing home caring for the elderly residents there, which I'm sure tests her patients on top of the patients being tested at home, uh, she gets a call from the school to learn that he had brought a crossbow to school with a dart. And it's clear the school has already had several conversations with her about her son's behavior, and they tell her they're going to assign him a monitor, and he'll be one-on-one with the monitor at school instead of being with the class. She strongly opposes this because she thinks it's going to make him feel even more different than he already feels. And she says, you know what, I'm just pulling him out of this school and I'm going to find him another one. Again, it, she's painted as a sympathetic character, but she's kind of burning some bridges of people who are only trying to help. And yeah. this isn't the only situation in her life where she's acting that way. Yeah, that starts to become a trend. Yeah. Uh, oh, so you think like her reaction here is like, she, yeah, she doesn't want the help, and that's why she it isn't really because she doesn't want him feeling different. It's more about protecting her. I mean, it is that she doesn't want him feeling different, but it's kind of like they're she doesn't understand that they have no choice at this point. Like he's bringing weapons to school; they could just expel him. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I think I think the journey we take with her as a character later in the film, you, you could look at that that more as like being an excuse from her part. And maybe this being more reflective of like her not willing to give him a hug or like give him the attention and like this idea of now them assigning someone for that one on one attention like feels like a threat to her. Maybe. Mm. Uh, I don't know. I I think it's open for interpretation probably. Yeah. Or maybe just like we're already so different and I feel guilty because it's my fault Mm. that this other thing making him feel different makes me really angry even though this is really about me and the fact that like we aren't normal yeah yeah exactly later that day they meet amelia's sister and her daughter who is samuel's cousin and they have an awkward discussion that amelia's niece no longer wants to have a joint birthday party with samuel like they have been doing every year it's a really tense discussion and it's clear that there are some uncomfortable feelings in the family and in the midst of all this samuel climbs to the top of the swing set and falls off of it He's fine, but it's just kind of a good example of how the film amps up the threat of real harm by intermingling it with the stress of everyday life. Just like the chaotic world of parenting where you've kind of got one drama happening over here and another happening over there, and you can't give your attention to both. (laughs) It's chaos, yeah. I I thought uh, they do this, I think, twice in the film. They cut like from him on the top of that to like him like bawling in the back seat. And uh, I think that's another time, like later when she's like reading him a story and then it like cuts to him like bawling. I think that's like played for humor pretty well. Uh, Right? Yeah, kind of like a dark humor, (laughs) almost like a knowing humor too, especially for parents of just like, yeah, we all know how this is going to go. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) They're the tears on the waterworks. Right, right. (laughs) That's such a trope in movies, like. It's um it's sometimes like a smash cut and it is a little bit in this but not not like an Edgar Wright smash cut but a subtler smash cut of something that feels inevitable like and the, and then this happened like mm, yeah it happened in the changeling when the girl has that nightmare and she's like all right fuck you can <laughs> you can saw through my floor if you want oh, yeah. to and then they smash <laughs> Just, cut to the chainsaw of the floor yeah yeah Right, right. It's like, okay, this was inevitable, and now we all see that it's happening. There is a certain humor to it. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, for some reason, watching a kid cry makes me laugh. 
<laughs> found it hilarious. But maybe that's that's more of a my issue thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It could be. Yeah. Uh, that night after they check his bedroom for monsters, Samuel finds a book on his bedroom shelf that neither he nor Amelia remembers being there. It's called Mr. Babadook, and it's a disturbing rhyming book about a monster called the Babadook. And via the words and pop-up images in this book, it seems like the monster is essentially essentially threatening to kill them. And the book says, when the Babadook comes, you'll hear three knocks. And I think this is the scene you're talking about, Ash, where she's like, oh, maybe we shouldn't read this. And he's like, no, no, come on, I want to see what happens. And then, yeah. but That's it's a- done really well, like, She's reading part of it aloud, and then once it becomes clear how scary it is, she reads the rest silently while we look at the pages mm-hmm. via the camera. And it's meanwhile, Samuel's like, "What happens? Does it get the boy? Does it get the boy?" And it, <laughs> the words are disturbing enough that it isn't quite as funny as you know the smash cut to him crying in the back seat. If that is yeah. your bag for humor, but it's it's freaky. It and is, the book yeah. is so well designed that it's just scary. I know, I know. You know, you think about all like the creepy books we run across in horror films, uh, like the Book of the Dead, uh, and, and and what have you. Is that what it's called, the Book of the Dead from the Evil Dead? Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is this is a great book. Like it's so well designed, so creepy. The drawings are awesome, and like the pop out uh, animations are really cool, uh, and the wording, uh, the font, and everything, so great. What book would you be more creeped out to have on your nightstand for a week? The Book the of the Bible. Dead or oh. Babadook? The Mystery? <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> that was an open-ended question. <laughs> uh, I think this one, man. Because, uh, yeah, it's like, a kid's, it's like a kid's book, which I think to your earlier point about, like, robbing something of innocence, uh, like Book of the Evil, like, yeah, or Book of the Dead, you know, it's like, there's like, it's made of skin or something. Or, and, uh, yeah, just... No, like okay there's gonna be scary shit in there but this is like kind of like a it, it pulls you in by being kind of like a kid story so it feels a lot creepier what about you agreed yeah i i don't want this i don't think i'd want this in my house yeah yeah it's messed up <laughs> yeah and you know speaking of that 1920s horror i feel like i see a lot of like the cabinet of dr caligari uh production design in the book and in this movie in general mm. just like cool you know narrow pointy jagged lines and angles and and high contrast black and white yeah i've heard that uh called like german expressionism yeah Uh, it it is a bit uh german expressionism yeah esque right right yeah yeah the black and white the yeah the jagged lines clown kind of design Mm mm-hmm and from here on out, the babadook is samuel's new fear and things continue to disintegrate in their household Later that night, Amelia is masturbating in her bed, and Samuel comes in complaining about the book, just as she's about to have an orgasm. And here she's getting so little sleep that she accidentally sleeps in until 9 that morning, so she lies to her work and tells them her son is sick and she'll get there late. And there's a co-worker who seems to have some romantic interest in her. He offers to cover her shift so she can go home to be with her sick son, and then when she gets back home, she realizes that her sister has been calling her because her son is freaking them out by talking to the Babadook all day while she has been babysitting him. And then her coworker comes over to give her flowers and learns that the boy isn't sick and that Amelia just can't send him to school anymore because, you know, things are disintegrating completely. 
And so this is kind of like Amelia's one chance at romance, and it's blown now. Mm. You think um, that turned him off? I think so. I mean, I think that was kind of the way it re- Not only did that turn him off, but she kind of says to him, like, how many six-year-olds do you know that still believe in monsters? And, mm. you know, I would guess a lot. <laughs> so she just kind of <laughs> reveals herself as, like, not having her shit together at all. So yeah. I think from her perspective, probably, she's like, oh, it's been seven years or so since my husband died, and here's a guy that likes me, and fuck, well, that fell apart, too. Like, Yeah. Though I wasn't sure if she was into him. It felt, uh, I, I don't know. I feel like she's, like, so maxed out that, like, she's just kind of, like, uh, living in the moment day to day, like, just trying to keep up and, like, drowning. So, uh, yeah, I, I didn't get a sense that, like, she uh, had any attachment here or longing to be with this guy. I think kind of to touch on what you just said, like, I think maybe there is some glimmer of hope there, but she doesn't even have the capacity to notice that she's... Oh, yeah. Like, maybe even interested. Yeah, or that, like, this guy, like, is, is like, chasing after her, potentially. Right, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think they do such a good job, and I'm curious to see if you feel the same way, too. Like, I know a lot of people complain about this movie, like, oh, my God, the kid from The Babadook is so annoying... And yeah, he is, but like that's part of the plot. He is supposed to be a very difficult child. Totally. And she's not making great choices as a mom or handling things very well. But a lot of us don't. <laughs> we hear ourselves saying <laughs> things that we know we shouldn't be saying to our kids. And I think they do a good job of letting us still empathize with her by showing just how hard it is to be Samuel's mom, a single parent nonetheless. But do you feel that too? Do you feel like, oh my gosh, she's a crappy mom? Or do you feel like, oh my gosh, this kid sucks? Or what? Uh, I, I just, I find the whole thing like very believable. Like, uh, it's such a balance. Like, uh, like, cause yeah, you're right. He's, he's so annoying, but is it like unrealistically annoying? I, I don't think so. I think he's like, uh, acting as any kid would. I, I think he's acting out because, uh, she's not a very like, um, open uh mother as we know like from the beginning in terms of like engaging with them like giving him uh like bonding with them on like maybe an emotional level or something like she's holding herself kind of separate so kind of lynn explains like why he's like acting out so much so i find his annoying like believable and then her as uh a mother i'm curious because uh yeah it's it's hard for me to like uh like know what like good versus bad parenting looks like here um my wonder is like yeah maybe why isn't she like is she like uh disciplining him enough or is it uh that she's not like is she being too attentive not enough attentive like i don't know i just yeah it's just hard for me to kind of know like who is in the wrong here like who who is the one uh, who's making mistakes i guess in this relationship but what about for you was it like clear right yeah i mean i'm not here to judge anyone's parenting i (laughs) there is zero space for me to do that but saying to a man who is a stranger to your son, how many six-year-olds do you know who still believe in monsters is, uh, you know, that's kind of throwing some shade at your kid and not just like (laughs) in a kind of teasing way. It's like a angered, thrown him under the bus in front of a adult stranger type way. Like, Mm. and you know, things get way worse. (laughs) She, she tells him to eat shit later in the movie. So (laughs) obviously those are not good choices, but, what about like pre that? Like, uh, were there other like uh, things you think that like kind of aggravated the situation more? I do think what you said is so true, and I see that in my own home life. Like, 
I'll be like, God, the kids have been such assholes lately. <laughs> and then I'll be like, well, I've been in a bad mood all week and I haven't been sleeping well. And I think my energy is feeding into them and they feel disconnected. So they're acting out like mm. I think it is very I think it's a very realistic depiction of parenting. Yeah. This kid is way more of a handful than a lot of kids, but I don't think it's I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of people watch this movie and think that is my kid exactly. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it feels very realistic. Yeah. Various things start to go wrong in their household and Samuel blames it on the Babadook. There's glass in Amelia's soup, a photo of her and her deceased husband is defiled, etc. So Amelia rips the book up and throws it in the trash, or the rubbish, as they call it in Australia. (laughs) And as Sam is kind of losing it, Amelia begins her own downward spiral as well. She lashes out at the other moms at her niece's birthday party. Things come to a head with her sister when her sister admits she can't stand being around Samuel. And she says, like, Amelia, you yourself can't even stand being around him. And on the way home, Samuel has an episode in the back seat and seems as though he's being strangled. After this incident, she takes him to the doctor, and to her great relief, she gets some sleeping pills for him while she awaits a psychiatric evaluation for him. So that night's kind of glorious for her. She sleeps until 11 a.m., and she has a smile on her face when she wakes up in the morning for seemingly the first time in the whole movie. But it is at this point that she hears three knocks on the door, and when she opens it, she finds that someone has reassembled the Mr. Babadook book and left it on her doorstep. This is kind of the uh, equivalent of the ball and the changeling, now that I think about it. Oh, yeah. It comes back. Right. Hey, uh, I think earlier at that birthday party, it's mentioned that Amelia is or was a children's book writer, potentially. Um, is that to plant the seed that, the, you know, they, they don't know where this book came from, but is there a chance that, you know, like she wrote it maybe? Wow, I did not pick up on that. I know she said they mentioned she was a writer, but did they mention children's books? Yeah, I thought she said like some children's books. Uh, and like I thought that was an interesting detail that they're in here given like the whole movie's premise is based off like a book that they mysteriously find. Wow, I totally missed that. That's awesome. Yeah, I I think that makes it even more clear that like they Amelia essentially has authored <laughs> the the, the, Bob, the entity of the Babadook. I don't think yeah. like she really wrote that book. Like I do think there is a supernatural element in this movie, but I think the supernatural is a representation of what she's going through. Sure. Yeah, I think so too. Do you think that the Babadook comes when she's finally had a good night's sleep to represent how like depression creeps back up on us even when we think we're finally in the clear or things finally start to go right yeah interesting no i i I didn't i didn't consider that um so she had like buried it down hasn't like dealt with it and suddenly is like feeling rested and well and that's like when it's like striking yeah uh, yeah at your peak yeah it could be that makes a lot of sense or and like i don't mean this as an argument against medicating yourself or your kids or whoever needs it but it also could be viewed as a representation of how suppressing the problem won't help and you you gotta oh, deal yeah. deal with this stuff and face it because yeah. she's kind of just you know, Samuel has the sleeping pills and Right. Is it solving yeah. the problem or is it just sweeping it under the rug? Yeah, sure, sure. Could also be uh her thinking this whole time that Samuel was a problem and now that he's kind of out of the picture, now like realizing like oh it actually has something to do with him, it's like my own Right. Potentially. That's a good point, too. 
So this version of the book she finds now has new pages that say that the more she denies the Babadook, the stronger it gets to, to what we were just talking about. And it's got some new pop-up in it, images that depict Amelia killing their dog, strangling Samuel, and ultimately slitting her own throat. She then receives a phone call featuring the Babadook's voice saying, Babadook, duck, duck. The new version of the book is even creepier than the last. <laughs> what did you think of it? <laughs> it is, yeah, man. It gets pretty dark. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, the knife moving up and down. Yep. It's pretty yeah, gnarly. The blood coming yeah. out. I liked it. So now that she has let the Babadook in, she uh, she did so when she opened the door after the three knocks. She starts starts to see it more and more. She sees it at the police station when she tries to report what's going on with this book. She sees it across the way in her neighbor's house, and she sees it fall from her bedroom ceiling and seemingly kind of into her. Is that how you perceived that scene? Like it had fall fell from the ceiling kind of like into her mouth almost? Yeah, that's what it looked like. Yeah. She kind of swallowed it. How do you feel about the pacing of this movie? I feel like, for me, things were starting to get a little slow right as they picked up. Um, Oh, interesting. But but what did you feel? Uh, No, actually, actually, I feel like it slows down a little bit later for me. Like, uh, you're getting some interesting, uh, like, daytime sequences of, like, them going out, interacting with others, uh, the doctor and stuff, uh, and then, like, her going to the police station. So I, I feel like that's kept the film moving, whereas I feel like later you get kind of, like, stuck in one setting, which kind of grounds, I feel like, solves the film a little bit. But uh, you're, you're already starting to feel some of that? Yeah, I think I I was starting to feel some of that here, and then the area you're talking about, I considered, like, oh, it's picking up. Oh, but it okay. did get kind of repetitive, like it's about to get a little repetitive. Oh, uh, okay, okay, yep. Um, so things keep going south. We learn via a phone call that she's on thin ice at her job. Uh, community services comes to visit her and Samuel to make sure everything's okay since he hasn't been at school. She starts being downright cruel to Samuel, telling him that if he's so hungry, he can go ahead and eat shit. She sees the Babadook in the back seat and crashes her car. She takes a bath in her clothes and pulls Samuel in in his clothes too. And he says to her, I don't want to see you. Like, I don't want you to go away. So I think he kind of knows he's he's losing her either literally or psychologically here. Yeah, yeah. It's really uh, interesting to watch his like how he's reacting to her. Uh, like, he, he's scared, but he's also, like, coming at her with, like, love uh, in, like, a, a very surprising way. He starts to kind of become the parent that sh- he needed her to be. Yeah, totally. Right, right. Being, like, vulnerable. Uh, yeah. Opening yeah. up to her, like, be, being there for her a little bit. Yeah. Like, trying to be. Right, right. When Samuel calls their elderly neighbor, neighbor? <laughs> neighbor because he's <laughs> concerned about his mom... Uh, Amelia freaks out and cuts the phone line with scissors. And she says, boy, oh, boy, gosh, this one kind of cut me to the bone. She said, is this the only way I can trust you not to embarrass me in front of our neighbors? And man, our kids are always, our garage is not attached to our house. So we walk from our back door across the driveway over to the garage. And the kids are just always, I don't know why, We've got decent kids, but they can really be a handful sometimes. <laughs> and something about going from the house to the garage and getting in the car is just like the worst part of the day. It feels like a scene. 
it's a scene and they're always screaming or hitting each other and <laughs> i am so crash. embarrassed yeah because i know we live in in the city of minneapolis so things are dense like i know the neighbors can hear everything ah. and i'm just mortified and it makes me even more upset and uh-huh. i'm just like yeah. you know i'll like grab one of them and like plop them in the car seat and angrily buckle the buckles and then I'm like, fuck, did someone see me do that too? Like, <laughs> I am yeah. horrible. And then I'm madder at them for how bad of a parent I'm being. And that, that the whole little moment just encapsulates, like, why this movie feels so real mm. and so... It's kind of painful for me to watch, to be honest. Sure. I've yeah, never yeah. told my kids to eat shit, luckily. <laughs> I haven't <laughs> yeah. tried to kill either of them yet, but... Yeah. You feel and say things that you never thought you would feel or say. Not everybody. Some people yeah. have a wonderful parenting experience, and I, you know, mine's wonderful too. But boy, oh boy, mm-hmm. it can be very hard. Ah, I, I believe it. You know, I like not. I was, you know, I, I'm not a parent. Uh, looking at parents, though, I, I've always kind of admired their ability to like yeah, do that stuff. And I, I've never kind of like, uh, I've never assumed that they hold like any kind of like embarrassment. Uh, for like or like um yeah those kind of feelings around like yeah raising like I'm always impressed like oh my god like they're able to do that and like you know not like feel any worry about like what others are thinking or judging but it sounds like that, that is something that all, all parents must uh kind of feel and here though she's not f- oh yeah I guess she is feeling that right that's exactly yeah what oh yeah thinking. she's like you're embarrassing me in front of the neighbors and I mean so often I feel like the stereotype because you see a kid like freaking out in the grocery store and the you know, I, people tend to be like, oh, my gosh, like, mom, dad, like, get your kid, get your kid under control, like, get your act together. <laughs> but yeah, it's mortifying when it happens. And so many times it's just like, there is nothing I can do here. Like, they have the leverage. Like, I can pick them up and carry them out of here, but it's going to be even more of a scene than it is now. So luckily mine don't have meltdowns in public all that often, but boy, oh, boy. Yeah. I guess I, I just assume uh, by the time you're a parent, like you go through that a few times. Like I was, I was thought like parents would lose that sense of like worry about like others judging or something. But that, that sticks with you. you. Just do a better job of not showing it. Yo, you absolutely, it absolutely sticks with you. I, I yeah. guarantee. Anytime you see it, even if it seems like the parent doesn't care, they, I'm sure they're mortified. Oh man, yeah, yeah, that's scary. Yeah. Anyway, I, I feel like we'll probably hear from a lot of parents either telling me. <laughs> that I sound like What's a horrible parent or being like, oh man, me too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it must be universal. I, yeah, maybe. I, I do think a lot of people's, it varies. Everyone's experience is, is different. Sure. Anyway, from this point on in the film, boy, I'm getting sweaty for uh, talking about all this personal shit. From this point on <laughs> in the film, <laughs> up until the conclusion, really, Amelia pretty much becomes Jack Torrance from The Shining. She goes from a sympathetic character to pretty damn terrifying. And that's the difference between her and Jack. Jack's never, at least in the 1980 movie, never really that sympathetic. She is. Amelia is, in my mind. Mm. Yeah. Even though you've had, like, these uh, quotes that uh, she's said. Like, when when do you think she was sympathetic towards uh, Samuel? I mean, I think you're able to sympathize with her as a character is what I mean. Like, you don't see her as the bad guy. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yep. 
So yeah, she's kind of losing it here. She sees a vision of a bloodied and dead Samuel. And when she awakes from that vision, she's in reality standing over him holding a knife. He's you know, unharmed, but he's terrified of her. And she also, she's watching TV and she sees a news broadcast of Samuel's murder and her own suicide with a vision of her ghostly face grinning at her from the window of her flat in the news broadcast. And she's seeing visions of her dead husband who's telling her to bring him the boy and that they can all be together again. She really does break the dog's neck and starts becoming more threatening to Samuel. And at one point she like supernaturally glides towards him, kind of the way the Babadook moves. And says shit like, you don't know how many times I've wished it was you, not him that died. Sometimes I just want to smash your head into a brick wall until your fucking brains pop out. And we haven't talked too much about the appearance of the Babadook, but yeah, he's like black top hat, very long like fingers and fingernails and kind of like a black overcoat. But he's really just kind of a black almost 2D silhouette. It is kind of almost like he came right out of the book. And his motions are like stop motion animations, right? Yeah, he's animated with stop motion animation and it looks in a way it looks a little silly, but like he's a character from a pop-up book, so I think it fits. I think it fits too. They got a really cool effect here that seems on theme with the Agreed. Agreed. Hey, what do you think is the driver behind, like, you know, Sam's, like, six or seven at this point? Do we know, like, why all of this is, like, happening right now? Is it because he's not in school and she has she's being forced to spend more time with him? Or was there some other event that's driving this? I think it is just a culmination of the past seven years. But you could say maybe the inciting incident is his cousin not wanting to have a birthday party with shared with him anymore. Hmm. Because we learn later that she has never celebrated his birthday on the day of his birthday because it is the anniversary of her husband's death. So that seems like a small inciting incident, but really it's kind of just like the straw that breaks the camel's back in my mind. Hmm. Yeah, sure. It forces her to face the day like she's never faced it before. Yeah. Yeah, that day, like that that birthday party, I feel like is one of the earliest scenes of her like uh, lashing out, I think, at like one of the other uh, kids' parents. Yes. Which, which is kind of hilarious in that moment. <laughs> yeah, but. I mean, I think that mom deserved it, kind of. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was great. Um, so he sees like, he like knows as kids tend to know, you know, these more spiritual things in movies or supernatural things, he, like, knows the Babadook is in control of her now. And he ends up using his monster weapons to, like, uh, knock her unconscious, essentially. He stabs her in the leg at one point and eventually knocks her unconscious. And when she wakes up, he's got her tied up in the basement. And like we were saying, he has become the parent. She's, like, cackling evilly and he's saying things like i'm not leaving you i know you don't love me the babadook won't let you but i love you mom and i always will and here i think it starts to become even more clear like the babadook represents her depression and her loss like the babadook won't let you love me like the depression and whatever it is you're going through is that's what's making you preventing you from loving me yeah and acting this way yeah, yeah, like that is the big thing that's just blocking 
everything good in your life from happening. Hmm. And his words here start to get through to her, and she begins crying and eventually vomits all this black goo onto the floor, which I assume to be a representation of her finally ridding herself of the Babadook. But the Babadook still exists outside of her now as a supernatural entity, and he's still trying to kill Samuel. And she screams at it, saying, You are nothing, and get out of my house. And at this point, the Babadook collapses and pathetically moans, and screams in her face before retreating to the basement where she locks it in. And in the film's resolution, we see that things are getting better with the two of them. Amelia is gardening, she looks well, and she's finally throwing Samuel a birthday party on the actual day of his birthday, uh, which she had never done before. And she still has the Babadook locked in the basement and occasionally goes down there to feed it worms from the garden, and when Samuel asks if he's ever, like, going to get to go down there with her and see it, she doesn't let him down there, and she says, uh, someday, when you're bigger, which I think mm. really means, like, someday you're going to have to deal with this, like, truly deep, dark depression like I did, oh. but but not yet. Interesting. Yeah, I, I thought it was, like, a someday I'll open up to you about my depression or, or grief or something mm. not that like you're gonna be really depressed <laughs> <laughs> yeah you're fucked that's, over buddy yeah is that it's what you're inevitable. saying you, th- you think that's what you think i it think is? yeah like someday you'll you'll deal with the the darkness of that comes with adult life like that everyone kind of has to face at one point or another not i mean some people are lucky to escape any bouts of truly negative feelings for a long period of time in their life but yeah, yeah. Uh, what you're saying might be more likely like I'll share this burden with you someday, but you're too young for it now. Yeah, because, uh, you know, I, my read on this was that uh, he, like, uh, and, and he's called out for, like, always, like, kind of calling things as they are, or, like, yeah, being able to see things. Uh, and he's, like, open about, like, his father not being there and, like, dying on the day of his birthday and all that stuff. Uh, and she's, like, kind of repressing it. And I feel like in the beginning of this film, he's, like, more open about, like, uh, not having a dad and missing him, where, like, she doesn't talk about it at all. And uh, so I, I feel like the, the whole uh, journey of this film is, like, because uh, at the end, then they're sitting with, like, the, the two people from that agency, and he, like, talks about his dad, and, like, she doesn't, like, shut him up. She's like, yeah. And, uh, like, she's just like, yeah, that's what it is. So it feels like like she's finally, like, there to, like, kind of, they both can be a little bit emotional with each other, like, support each other in, in that a little bit, versus, yeah. like, he's going to later process it, potentially. Sure, right. But you know. think, like, someday when you're bigger means, like, I am okay talking it with about you, well, talking about it with you a little bit, but yeah, I don't know that I'll really tell you how dark things truly were until... You're older. But, yeah. but yeah, I think he fucking like knows because he was... <laughs> he was there. He <laughs> was... She attempted yeah. to murder him. Yeah, yeah. Let me tell you the story of why we don't have a dog anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> Got these stitches in my leg, yeah. Um, That's true. So, and then at the very end, we close with Samuel performing a magic trick. It's been shown throughout the movie that he's into practicing magic. And the top hat of a uh, magician goes quite well with the Babadook's top hat. Oh, I didn't even tie that. Good call. And he makes an actual dove appear at the end of this movie. I assume maybe that's because a dove can symbolize peace and they are finally at peace now, but sure, this was another weird thing that irked me. Like, the film opened with him, like, using hammer, nails, and saw to make these elaborate wooden contraptions, 
and it closes with him like making an actual dove appear. <laughs> it was that off to you, or did you question it? It just seems like this film is so grounded in the yeah. realism of parenting yeah. a difficult child that to have these weird things in it is just like, well, what? They're weird little curveballs to me. It really is, man. But I, I put all magic in that category. Like uh, anytime <laughs> I see someone doing magic, I, I just yeah, I just I, I gotta like suspend like so much belief, but. I, I do have a lot of questions on, like, where'd the bird come from? Who's feeding it? Now what are you going to do with that bird? Uh, yeah, it's, it's it's confusing. Yeah, exactly, which is part of why I was irked. But maybe that's a, a, a strange nitpick. Because then part of me was like, is that real? It, or is this like a happy like ending oh. fake? And the newsreel that she watched on TV is what really happens. Oh, interesting. I doubt that yeah. very much. I think it's meant to have to be this realistic uplifting ending but it's just the fact that a kid made a dove appear makes me think are we in reality anymore is that what magicians like typically do though like pull <laughs> rabbits out of hats i guess not when they're seven but <laughs> sure i mean yeah. yeah maybe i'm picking away at it too hard yeah i don't, I don't know uh I'm, i was like very suspicious of anyone who like knows magic and i, I don't get it I don't, I don't know how they do it and i, I think it's the, the some like devil work there and so. she just like lovingly laughs like hooray instead yeah. of like a fucking bird <laughs> yeah, like, I know. where did you get that are we gonna keep it yeah <laughs> yeah yeah i guess that would freak me out as a parent <laughs> Think <about that>. yeah. <laughs> i tell you what even if i was like in one of my best moods and our family was in complete harmony mode i'd still <laughs> be like bro where the fuck did you get that bird yeah, you're yeah. seven <laughs> yeah 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 my mind didn't jump to that as, as a parent but I, yeah that makes total sense yeah <laughs> uh oh hey what, one thing I, I know you've always called out is the role of people peeing themselves in movies did this fit your role because usually you say w- w- what's your role like women typically do it when they're scared versus men do it when they're possessed is that what yeah my, well usually if you see a man urinate in a horror movie like pee his pants it's be to meant to show how scared he is or oh. to make us think he's a coward. Mm. And when a woman does it, it's to show us that she has lost control and she's possessed possessed by outside forces. And I think yeah. there's, you know, weird sexist undertones in there that I won't get into now. But yeah, who uh, does the kid pee himself? I think he pees himself and like I, she like makes fun of him about it. Yeah, I think child children get a pass. Oh, okay. Whole other category of peeing yourself. Yeah, that's just plain you beat yourself. <laughs> yeah. Understandable. That's a, well, it happens to the best of us type situation. Sure. All right. What did you think of this movie, man? Yeah. Uh, I think I appreciated it more on, on this viewing. Uh, just, uh, I mean, it's so much of this is carried on this nuanced performance by Essie Davis and uh, Noah Wiseman. Like, so much could have gone wrong here. Uh, and I, I get, like, people can be divided on, like, yeah, was he over the top and annoyingness? I don't know if, like, she gets any criticism. Uh, but from my perspective, I, I felt like it was a very balanced and believable performance 
that like brought you into them when it needed to and then like scared the shit out of you in the second half with like her turn as a character uh and then like amazing job like on the visuals and uh such a cool way to tell tell a story about grief and uh depression and like yeah as, as we mentioned in the top of the episode this thing that like no one talks about about like how challenging being a parent can be and like uh the thoughts you have about uh your child and things and kind of showing it in a original and, and frightening way in the context of a horror film so i i, I really thought this, this is like one of the best uh, horror films like of the last like a decade or two but uh what about you what was your takeaway on this i wholeheartedly agree and uh yeah like you said man se davis's performance is amazing i think throughout like the first 45 minutes or so there's just more subtlety to it there's so much sadness and longing in her face but then she just cranks it up and she starts losing her mind and she can become utterly heartbroken and melting away and then become terrifying and menacing and just, wow, awesome performance. I it really is. I don't know how she could have done it any better. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, the production design and direction and the nuance of the script just works really well together. The Babadook design is great feels like it blends seamlessly into the world of the movie and into the design of their home. like, And it's so well done because you're looking at their house and you're not thinking, wow, this is decorated strangely. Like, this looks like the book. It, it looks like a normal house, but at the same time, it really kind of is like a German expressionist, like you said, at the same time. It's very shadowy and black against white and sparsely populated which makes sense because they presumably don't have a lot of money Mm -hmm. it's just such a seamless work of design on on every front the production design the art design the monster itself and the effects work it's just it's a beautiful visually beautiful movie it really is fairly stylistic and and like all unified on one stylistic front yeah, isn't that crazy? Like uh, from almost like every angle of, of the filmmaking, like kind of nailed it on. Uh, yeah, the production elements on so so aligns like the theme of the film. Like that, I think it's rare to see something that feels so uh, comprehensive. Agreed. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, I she watches a lot of nineteen twenties horror on TV during the movie too, and she watches Phantom of the Opera with Lon Chaney, uh, who she modeled. You know, she modeled. The Babadook on Lon Chaney's, one of Lon Chaney's other characters. Right, right. What, uh, why, why was she watching that stuff? Was she like a horror fan or something? It's a good question. I, I don't know if it's just, you know, so many horror movies show a little bit of their influences when characters are watching TV. They're often watching a horror movie. But mm. it also, I mean, the Babadook's imagery fits that. So she was kind of watching a movie and the Babadook appeared in the movie and freaked her out. And right. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of where her head was in that space. Yeah, that that works really cool. Uh, and then, yeah, like you're right. Like the house, I think was like so well designed. Like I don't know, part of it, like part of the house design, like felt really sad and like dark mm-hmm. and like drab to me. But I, yeah, I think that's like uh, on like theme with the, what what's like happening, like the family dynamic almost. Right. At one point, Samuel's cousins like my mom says she doesn't want to go over your house anymore because it's too depressing. It really is. <laughs> And you know that feeling, like I, we've all walked into a house before where you're just like, whoa, there are some psychological problems here that are manifesting <laughs> yeah. in the physical, 
completeness of this house. Either it's a total mess or it's just something about it is just depressing. Exactly. It's like you can feel like thickness in the air when you step in. Totally. Yeah. I think they capture that here really well. Um, and then I, I don't know, like, do you feel like at the end they kind of, uh, reversed that? Cause like then suddenly like the windows open, there's like sunlight coming in, they're having like a cup of tea. Like, uh, is that meant to be like, uh, like, yeah, I'll, I'll, like this, uh, like really intense atmosphere they built up throughout the film in the house. It's suddenly like gone, uh, then at the end. Yeah. Right. The mood has lightened and, and you can feel it just like my kids can feel when, when my mood is lightened and they, <laughs> they, they aren't acting out. out as much. Sure, sure. Do you think, uh, I, I don't know, I feel like we talked about this maybe when we talked about the film like years ago, but or maybe I read it somewhere. Uh, is the ending too happy in this film? Like it is such like a realistic film throughout the, the, the whole, uh, you know, time, the runtime. But then at the end, like it's like, you know, outside cup of tea uh, in the yard, birthday party. The, the mom's like so loving. Suddenly, birds are showing up. Is there like an unbelievableness to the ending? You know, I don't think it's terribly unbelievable. They don't go too heavy-handed with it. I mean, the way you describe it, yeah, it does sound a little heavy-handed. But it's not like she's hugging her sister and he's holding hands with his cousin and they go off and play. Like he's still saying awkwardly blunt things to the community services people. The community service people are still showing up at their house. And the Babadook is still in the basement. Like, I struggle with the metaphor of her feeding it worms and trying to decipher what that means. Like, Mm. basically, it's never really gone, but it's kept at bay and not suppressed. Like, she's still attending to it, I think, is maybe what the worms symbolize like i'm still like dealing with this thing and i'm not shying away i'm i'm going down into the darkness and looking it in the eye yeah exactly but i've also got a life to live yeah right yeah it's kind of funny because she's kind of like compartmentalized it by giving it a room in the basement that uh which is yeah i don't don't know i I don't know what the takeaway is is it like yeah, so you have grief. Uh, important, important thing is to like identify it or whatever, and then like you know don't ignore it. Like kind of live with it, which I feel like this movie is saying, uh, like acknowledge it and like uh, take it away. But then also the fact that like now she can like compart- compartmentalize it by keeping it like in a separate room, and it doesn't. Have, and now she's got like this perfect relationship with their kid. Like, is that kind of idealistic? I mean, I think part- I'm no psychologist, clearly, but compartmentalizing I think is in a way necessary in life like you gotta set some some trauma off to the side or you'll never be able to function (laughs) like your old (laughs) self again that's true i i just yeah i think it works i do think they could have gone heavier with it It, the guy could have showed up with more flowers and been like want to go on a date on saturday night like (laughs) they could have gone real over the top yeah but i think this was just a bare minimum of like things have gotten better like yeah, it's improved. She's letting a little bit of light in. Sure, sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I, I really, I really like the the message here. I, I, I think it's cool to see it shown that way. And that, like, yeah, you can't defeat this villain, or this monster, but you can kind of like live with it. I think even though the script got a little repetitive for me, I think it's a really well done script that just shows the nuance of how this grief and the damage it's done, like the butterfly effect and the ripple effect on every aspect of their lives and just the pollock casts over everything. It 
she's depressed, so she can't be emotionally available for her son. And her son acts out, and so then she has a bad relationship with the school, and he has a bad relationship with the kids at school, and then it damages her relationship with her sister and and her work. So then it's just this whole feedback loop where the negative feelings she had anyway are reinforced, like you being here has ruined my life. Mm-hmm. When in reality, like her grief has ruined her relationship with her son and the negative relationship she has with her son has ruined everything in their lives. And again, not to blame or shame her. Like, I don't think this is a movie about an annoying kid or a bad mom. I think it's just about people struggling to figure it out. Yeah. Totally. And I think it's very realistically depicted. It is, yeah. And it's so hard, I think, to shoot a movie like that where, yeah, you're not trying to put the blame on someone. You try to keep the audience, like, uh, empathizing with both characters and somehow yeah. they achieve that. Yeah. And, I mean, I think the kid needs to be a little over-the-top annoying in order for us to sympathize with Amelia hating a child. <laughs> and, oh, yeah. <laughs> and wishing her kid had died instead of her husband. Like, that is such a taboo and oh, we've beefed about that in other horror movies recently where the moms are so willing to be like, whatever happens, make sure the kid survives instead of me, like when they're pregnant. Mm-hmm. And it's just this expectation that a mom, culturally, a mom is supposed to feel that way. Like, anything for my kid. I'll put myself through hell for my kid. Mm-hmm. And to feel like you wish the kid would have died and your husband would have made it, I think is a totally reasonable and expected thing to feel, but totally it feels so cruel. It does. And that just like kind of furthers like, yeah, your isolation or depression. Cause like, yeah, you're You're so ashamed of what you're feeling. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's it's deep. It's on something very real. Yeah. Oh, speaking of that, like the, how kids pick up on like, she's emotionally unavailable. I, th- I like the first line of the book of the Mr. Babadook. It says, if it's in a word or it's in a look, you can't get rid of the Babadook. Mm. And I think that's maybe referring to like the tones and the words we use when we speak to each other or our children especially and the facial expressions that you're giving that you don't even realize you're giving that other right. people pick up on. Right, right. Yeah, it's there. Yeah, yeah, like a kid, kids see that, other people see that, your spouse sees that and picks up on like, okay, things are not okay between us right now or something's yeah. going on under the surface. And people, yeah. a lot of times people are pretty bad at realizing that they are doing things like that. Mm, yeah, right. Yeah, body language, uh, tone, all that. there's like, yeah, words are just like one aspect of uh, communication and they're like actually like, hundreds of thousands of signals you might be giving through other ways. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like the classic argument of like, oh, what did I do? Or like, what's wrong? Like, (laughs) what are you mad about? And then the other person's like, I didn't say anything. (laughs) Well, you didn't have to say anything. Exactly. Yeah, 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 exactly. Uh, Yeah, that's that's really cool. I, I think they hit on something really unique with that. Do you think it's a scary movie? I actually do think uh, it gets pretty scary. And I can't tell 
what is scarier? Is it the images and like the scenes of the Babadook in the background here and there and like that book? Which, yeah, that, that's creepy. But I, I think the real fear comes from uh, Essie's performance. So she gets like more and more menacing as as a mother. And like, uh, yeah, uh, I think that whole idea, like you've mentioned, like other movies, like where you think you know someone and then they turn out to be like someone different uh, like that. I think that fear really hit home for me. What, what about you? Yeah. And uh, I agree. I agree. I I remember the first time I watched it, I th- thought the Babadook itself was scary. And I still think the Babadook looks really good and is done well. I'm not quite as terrified by that this time, but this time it was really the book that frightened me. Yeah. And yeah, once the flip switches, the switch flips <laughs> with Essie <laughs> and she like yeah. really goes psycho, then that starts to really scare me. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's a really good comparison comparing her to uh, Jack or uh, I was also thinking uh, Carrie's mother potentially. Like I, I feel like these are parents that I think are like some of the scariest parents on, on film. Yeah, for sure. But Carrie's mother is no, not a character you can feel for. She's just oh, yeah. mean I'm the whole time. Yeah, I'm surprised you care for uh, Jack in uh, in that in The Shining. You do? No, I... Not really, because he's meant to be... Basically, that's what I'm saying. Like, oh, Amelia yeah. is a character you can get on board with and understand what she's going through. Jack is just kind of the villain from the start, even before yeah. he's the villain. Gotcha. Yeah, And I sense. think that was one of Stephen King's complaints with the film, actually. Ah, uh, okay, okay. Makes sense. Uh, yeah. Well, and uh, oh yeah, you talk about it being repetitive. Uh, it, you didn't feel like that last act, like in the house at night. Uh, did you feel like that kind of slowed down for you? I don't think it slowed down. I do think it got a little repetitive, but as a descent into madness, I thought I was on board with all of it. So yeah, that part I was cool with. It was a little bit more like, oh, she's talking to her sister again. Oh, she's on the phone with work again. Like, oh, Samuel acted out again or hurt himself oh, or yeah. fell or they're in the car twice. And which time did she get in a car accident? Oh, just, right. That yeah. part of it got a little repetitive. But yeah. I sometimes feel like maybe a movie has good pacing when just around the time I start to think, boy, this is maybe a little slow, it starts to pick up. Like sure. maybe that's stretching it to its limit and yep. and it's the way it should be done. But Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a fine line to to draw and like know when to pick things up. Yeah, yeah, and especially a movie when you're supposed to be kind of understanding how annoying everything is. Like, yeah, maybe you want to have some irritation in the viewing experience. Yeah, I think that's very interesting because from, from a plot standpoint, there aren't like a lot of events that drive this movie. It, and like I, I think that part you're talking about, it does like feel very repetitive because it's just like them on a day-to-day basis, like going places, like doing errands, or like t- picking up the kid or going to work and that kind of thing. So it's kind of cool. You have a movie that isn't like plot driven. Yeah, right, right. But at the same time, the plot like makes, it's a good plot, but it's, it's mostly like talking and exchanges she has with other people and maybe like little road trips back and forth to work or whatever. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, there are no big events. Right, right. Like, yeah, I feel like the only event is like they find a book, and then it shows up again. Yeah, and then, yeah. And then yeah. maybe I shouldn't say there's no big events like getting stabbed in the leg and oh, vomiting yeah. black goo and <laughs> killing your dog. Those are big events, but you know, it's not a yeah, it's not that big of a movie. Right, right. Which I I think serves it well. It keeps it very like intimate and real. 
Agreed. Agreed. And just like this claustrophobic feeling that you have so often with a parent, especially in the winter, or with a kid, especially in the winter in Minnesota, man. Like, oh, yeah. we are You're just fucking in. in this house together all the time. And like, <laughs> yeah. it, it feels repetitive, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's real. All right, buddy. Zero to five baths with your clothes on. What do you give this movie? You know, I was, I was stuck between a four and a half and a five uh, just because of that pacing. But I think her acting, like in the switch that uh, she goes through as a character, kind of carries that part for me. So I think I, I got to give this a five. Uh, wait, wait, what'd you say the scale was? Uh, baths with your clothes on? Oh, yeah. Five baths with your clothes on. Uh, yeah, I think. Really original story that hits on a powerful theme that uh, isn't talked about much, and I think it takes a brave movie to uncover some of those uh, th- those ideas in, in a smart way, and I think this movie goes there. And then just amazing performances that are nuanced, uh, which could have easily led their film in the wrong direction by S.E. Davis and Noah Wiseman. I think they really help land this film and make you uh, take you on like a very emotional journey. So I, I love this, man. Great film. What about you? Awesome. I love it, too. I... I... I went a little softer, a 4.5 out of 5, but I still love it. I think it succeeds on nearly every level. Its supernatural scares are effectively grounded in real-life tragedy and broken relationships that are just depicted brilliantly by a superb performance from S.E. Davis. And we are kind of opposites on this one, buddy. When we discussed this a long time ago, pre-podcast, I gave it a 5 and you only gave it a 4. No way. <laughs> and you came up all the way one whole yeah. bath to a five, and I, I dropped a half star. Dropped half stuff. Okay, cool. Uh, big differences watching it as a uh, parent now versus uh, – is it the, like, the unbelievableness of like some of his th- toys? Yeah, I mean, those are – the two things are that it's like almost physically painful to watch just because – I mean, and it's, a, it's an exaggerated version of my day-to-day as a parent, but a lot of it hits home, like – Things get hard and you don't understand what your kid is doing and you say things you wish you hadn't said and you see yourself becoming a person you didn't think you were. Yeah. Yeah. But, so in that way then it sounds like it's become more relatable. Yeah. Uh, it packs more of a punch. Sure. But then your score has gone down by a half and is, is it mostly because of the It's toys? the ridiculousness of these contraptions he made. It sounds like a silly <laughs> nitpick, but... yeah. The movie is so real and so I it just gets humans and like it gets relationships that to for him to have this backpack made of like wood that he's presumably made on his own that flings a bocce ball across the room <laughs> with a crossbow and then yeah or separately a crossbow and then he's making doves appear at the end I'm just like these seem like mistakes. Like, you shouldn't have put that in the movie. Yeah. And, I mean, Jennifer Kent, she made an incredible movie. I just to say, like, hey, you made a mistake is seems silly. But I feel like I reserve fives for it's either a movie I cannot picture anything being done differently to improve the movie or the good parts are so good like I can overlook any flaws or I kind of, you know, like the flaws like I like a, my dirty old hats. Like I, I have affection for the flaws. 
And I just, yep. that is a flaw that just sticks in my craw. I don't, <laughs> I have difficulty finding affection for it or overlooking it just because I feel like it undercuts the rest of the, the realism. Sure, that makes sense. Sometimes in these films, when, when like things do that, I'm able to overlook it. Like in this one, I was just like, oh, well, it's Australia. So that's probably <laughs> Yeah, thing. right? <laughs> yeah, kids there probably. Are Everything will kill you there. Yeah, yeah, just some cultural thing I'm not grasping here. But yeah, that's a, a, that's a valid nitpick. Sure. All right. All right, cool. Well, glad we finally watched that one. Boy, I have, I, long episode, which is fitting. I think this is a... An important movie, and there's a lot to discuss. So For sure. I agree. That has been it. That has been our discussion on The Babadook. Hope you enjoyed it. If you did, you can give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. If you want to talk to us about it, you can go to horrormovieclub.com and click on the social links drop down. You're going to find links to Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, where you can message us or comment on our post or whatever, and we'll post every Thursday what we're going to be covering next week. There's also a link in that social links drop down on our website for Discord where you can jump on and interact with a bunch of listeners and uh, fans of horror movies and just start a conversation. we got a great community there on Discord. While you're on horrormovieclub.com, you can click on the big orange button for Patreon and subscribe for a dollar a month to get bonus episodes. And our logo is done by Amy Mae Popart. So check her out on Etsy.com by searching Amy Mae Popart, all one word. And until next time, remember that you cannot help your distressed child until you vomit up as much black goo as possible onto your basement floor. <laughs> That's your self-help yeah, tip yeah. from Brian. <laughs> yeah, step one. <laughs> I'm going to write a self-help book for yeah. parents called Vomit the Black Goo. And there you go. <laughs> it's going to be a bestseller. Make sure Colon you have like, pop the road out. to healing. Yeah, yeah. yeah pop-up characters the black bomb it's like coming out exactly it's gonna be a (laughs) pop-up parenting book yes (laughs) that actually you could really like make a parenting book based on this movie you could yeah yeah there's some real lessons that's a weird little niche I'm gonna I'm gonna get on the phone with Jennifer (laughs) Kent and see if I can't work that out (laughs) good idea I like it sign me up